Section 8 of the Book of Famous Sieges. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Ficklin, Indianapolis. The Book of Famous Sieges by Tudor Jinks. The Siege of Tyre, 327 BC. It will be as well to begin the story of Alexander's taking of the city of Tyre by admitting that, from the modern point of view, there is little or no excuse for the exploits of the Macedonian conqueror. Even his admirers admit he had no other purpose than to extend his power as widely as possible, though he seems to have made the excuse that he wished to extend Greek civilization. Having made himself master of Macedonia and the neighboring regions, having discovered the power of his soldiery to overcome lesser armies, Alexander simply extended his conquests farther and farther as he learned others' weaknesses and his own strength. As a boy, Alexander complained that his father would leave him nothing great to do. Taught by his mother to think himself a descendant of Achilles, coming to the throne at a time when his kingdom was full of revolt, Alexander was trained to warfare from the beginning, and had placed in his hands by the death of his father the best organized army then in the world. He was but twenty years old when he took the throne, and at twenty-two he had already won great victories against barbarians and Greeks. He was no older when, at the head of thirty-five thousand men, he invaded Asia, defeating at the Granicus River a great Persian army, that left all Asia Minor in his hands. The next year he defeated 600,000 Persians, the army of King Darius. It was at this time that he turned southward to attack Phoenicia, for the Phoenicians were the great naval power of the world, and Alexander did not dare march into Asia, leaving behind him Phoenician fleets that might aid his enemies at home, or cut off his retreat. Of the Phoenician cities, the greatest and richest was Tyre, the mother city of Carthage, which began as one of its colonies, the grandeur, the pride, and the power of this city can be best understood by reading in the Bible the 27th chapter of Ezekiel, where the prophet most poetically sets forth the city's magnificence in predicting its fall. There have really been two cities of Tyre, the old and the new, one upon the mainland, the other on a small island some two miles long, across a strait half a mile in width. The old city had resisted the attack of Nebuchadnezzar for thirty years, but had finally been destroyed. New Tyre, the island city, was surrounded on all sides by lofty walls built of squared stones set firmly in gypsum, magnificent fortifications of masonry with lofty towers. To the north and south of the island were two harbors, one looking towards its sister city, Sidon, the other toward its daughter city, Carthage. In these harbors, upon the approach of Alexander, the Phoenician fleet was sheltered, a fleet of galleys with masts and sails, but also rowed by from three to five banks of oars. Alexander had with him no fleet when he first approached the city and was compelled to make an attack by land. The old city of Tyre had been abandoned, and the Tyrians had sent their women and children and their old men for the most part to shelter in Carthage, so that the new town was strongly garrisoned by some 30,000 effective men, was amply provisioned, and its people did not for a moment believe that Alexander could take the place. When his heralds arrived to demand Tyre's surrender, they were carried to the lofty walls that faced the shore and thrown into the sea, in wanton insult to the Macedonian army. The first step in the siege was to construct a great mole, or causeway, so that Alexander could bring his army from ashore to the island. This, of course, was begun out of range of the engines from the walls. To construct the mole, Alexander used the materials of the abandoned city, first driving piles of cedar from the forests of Lebanon deep into the bottom of the strait, and building up the work with wood, stone, and earth, with which, to great firmness, he had mingled rushes. Much of the hardest work was done by the inhabitants of the country round about, whom Alexander's soldiers gathered together and forced to labor at its construction. At the task of building the mole, Alexander's men worked day and night, while their general encouraged the best workers by large presents, 
and, as was his custom, oversaw every detail in person. Along the edges of this mole, the waves of the Mediterranean dashed, and to keep it from being washed away, the Macedonians felled great trees, with which they made a barrier along its whole length as a breakwater. So soon as the growing causeway approached within the walls of Tyre, the Tyrian engineers set up great machines for throwing darts and stones, and posted their skillful archers and spearmen thickly along the battlements, so that the soldiers found their work more and more perilous the further it proceeded. They were protected by great shields and by mantelettes, or rolling breastworks made of logs framed together, but every now and then some workman would expose himself and be picked off by a Tyrian marksman. To meet these attacks, Alexander was forced to erect two great wooden towers at the outward end of the mole, and to station upon them his own engineers and archers, to oppose the fire of those besieged by shooting those who fired from the walls. Meanwhile, the Tyrian fleets came boldly out from the harbors, knowing that there was no navy to oppose them, and, advancing towards the sides of the mole, poured a heavy fire upon Alexander's soldiers and worksmen. When the towers were finished, a battle waged fiercely between the Macedonians and Tyrians for days, the mole meanwhile growing slowly. The front of the towers had to be protected by rawhides, for from the walls the Tyrian engines flung cauldrons of burning pitch and masses of flaming tow. When they saw that the towers could not thus be destroyed, the Tyrians prepared in one of their harbors a great flatboat, such as they used in transporting animals. This had two masts upon it, from the yards of which they hung cauldrons filled with pitch or bitumen, and perhaps sulfur or other combustibles. The whole boat was then loaded with dried wood, well soaked with oil and bitumen, and when all was ready, two of the triremes, or ships of war, one on each side, towed the flaming ship out of the harbor. Bringing it close to the towers at the head of the mole, they set it adrift in such a way that the winds and waves carried it against the causeway. The back of the fireboat had been so loaded that the prow was raised high in the air, and it ran up the side of the mole and stuck fast. A few brave Tyrian soldiers now set fire to the great mass of wood and sprang into the sea to swim back to their friends. Alexander and his soldiers rushed to extinguish the flames, but at the same moment the Tyrians gathered upon the walls, sending volleys of missiles against them, and despite the Macedonians' efforts, the great towers caught fire, and after a single hour most of the mole was destroyed. Thus failed Alexander's first attempt, and we can imagine the rejoicing of the Tyrians as they yelled with triumph, gazing over the smoky ruins from their lofty walls. They had taken some few Macedonian prisoners, and these they tortured and put to death in full sight of their companions, tossing the bodies into the sea. This desecration of the bodies was to the Macedonians the greatest of all insults, since to them, as to the Greeks, the burial of the dead was a matter of supreme importance. By his failure and the insults of the Tyrians, Alexander was driven to mightier efforts. Leaving his able engineers and clever workmen to build a broader, bigger mole, Alexander departed for Sidon to get together a fleet and to summon more soldiers to his assistance. While the work upon the mole proceeded, Alexander collected at first eighty, and finally a fleet of over two hundred vessels, and he was also joined by 4,000 Greeks under Cleander. In command of this great force, Alexander returned to the siege. Having captured a few of the Tyrian vessels that had ventured too far from the harbors, he drove all the rest of the enemy's ships from the seas. They were drawn up in the harbor and their prows towards the entrance, and across the entrance to the harbor the Tyrians stretched a great chain. Then Alexander's fleet was moored along the shore on both sides of the mole, ready to attack if the enemy's naval force came out. Having thus guarded against interference from the Tyrians, Alexander's men built many great catapults. These they placed upon flatboats and upon slower vessels of his fleet, and upon the mole itself. Other vessels were provided with lofty towers, or with battering rams, and two of them carried great bridges hinged to the decks and drawn up against their masts ready to be dropped down upon the Tyrian walls when a breach should be made in them. In order to repulse the coming attack, 
the Tyrians erected many wooden towers on top of their stone walls, and from these discharged great volleys of arrows and flaming firepots against any of the Macedonian vessels that approached. As the Tyrian walls were 150 feet high, little could be done until they were broken through at some point, and when Alexander's fleet advanced to the attack and drove their rams against the walls, and lowered men with crowbars and hammers to break the foundations, it was discovered that the base of the Great Wall was protected by an enormous mass of loose boulders, against which the rams had no effect, and which could not be removed except a few at a time, under the fire of the enemy. But the greater the difficulty, the more fiercely the Macedonians conducted the attack. Alexander's engineers prepared great flatboats, and had them guarded by triremes, which are said to have been mail-clad, that is, protected either by metal or leather and ropes against the fire from the walls. These boats were tied to the mole, and from their decks divers were sent to attach nooses to the loose stones, so they could be hauled up and deposited in the flatboats, by which they were carried out to sea. From the Tyrian walls were thrust long poles with hooked knives to cut the ropes that fastened the flatboats. Then Alexander sent some of his vessels to guard these ropes, but still the ropes were severed by Tyrian divers who, probably by hidden ways, swam out from beneath the walls with knives in their hands. At length Alexander was forced to moor his boats with chains, and then gradually succeeded in removing the loose stones from the base of a part of the wall. One of the causes that made the Tyrians hold out so bravely was the hope that they would get help from Carthage, which owed them everything for past favors. But both Carthaginians and Tyrians were Semites, keen in trading, shrewd in commerce, but lacking in generosity, though brave and skillful when driven into a corner. There was in the race little sympathy with their fellows, and throughout Tyre's great extremity, Carthaginians remained idle spectators of its ruin. The next attempt of the Tyrians to interfere with the siege consisted of a naval attack. Across the narrow mouth of the harbor they stretched many sails, as if to dry them, thus hiding their fleet from the Macedonians. Behind this screen, thirteen of their strongest vessels were loaded with soldiers, and one day, at noon, suddenly withdrawing the screen of sails, these dashed out into the harbor, driven at full speed by their rowers, and attacked Alexander's vessels that were drawn up to protect the side of the mole. It is said that Alexander was doing the classic equivalent for enjoying his lunch, or else was passing the hot time of the day in oriental fashion by taking a nap. At all events, things went badly for the Macedonian fleet, which lost many men and was in a fair way to be captured. Learning of this sudden outbreak, Alexander showed, as one of the writers say, the qualities of an admiral in repelling it. Hastily preparing for action a number of his own vessels, he dashed at full speed around the whole island on which Tyre stood. Though he was in full view of the Tyrians on the walls, so busy were the vessels implying their attack that they had no warning of the coming vengeance until the rescuing Macedonian fleet appeared to cut them off from the mouth of their harbor, attacking them in the rear. Out of the thirteen Tyrian vessels, two were captured, and a number of others severely damaged, making their escape with the greatest difficulty. Alexander had no desire to be interrupted again during the lunch hour by similar naval impertinence, so he stationed enough of his own vessels before the mouth of the Tyrian harbors to make certain that their vessels could no longer interfere with the besiegers' work. By this time, the mole had come close enough to the wall so that the battering rams could be swung to and fro to deliver their shattering blows, but against the solidly cemented ramparts of Tyre, the rams proved nearly useless. Now that he had a fleet, while the Tyrian fleet was bottled up, Alexander was able to attack the wall even at other parts than those reached by the mole, and, sending his war vessels close to the city, he tested the strength of its walls upon all sides. It is said that there is always a weakest link in a chain. At Tyre, this was found on the seaward side of the fortification. Taking it for granted that they would always be able to rely upon their fleet, the walls were either thinner or weaker toward the sea. Here the army succeeded in cracking, dislodging, and removing stones until a breach in the wall was made. Two vessels had been made ready to lower bridges onto the opening as soon as made, and now these were rowed or pushed forward. The bridges were dropped, and the heavily armed Macedonian soldiers advanced with lance and sword behind their shields, 
to clear the way for the besiegers. But the Tyrians had gathered in such numbers behind the breached wall, and poured upon the attacking party so fierce a volley of stones, arrows, burning pitch, and balls of flaming tow, that Alexander's men were driven back, while behind the breach the Tyrians built a second wall, curved into a half-moon, that for the time closed the gap. Then came an interval of three days, during which both sides were making ready for the grand assault. Alexander brought together all his battering rams opposite the weakened wall, sent both his fleets to break the chains at the mouth of the Tyrian harbors, and at an appointed time the whole Macedonian force was let loose upon the city. All the engines at once began flinging heavy stones and great timbers against the walls, while the Macedonian fleets rammed and broke the chains, entered the harbors, and attacked the Tyrian vessels. The old breach was widened, the bridges once more lowered from the floating boats, and Alexander's chosen men in close array fought their way to the walls and gained their top. Then, separating into two parties, they marched along the top of the walls, taking in turn each tower as they came to it. The attacking fleet also succeeded in reaching the walls of the harbor side, put up great ladders by which the soldiers climbed to the top of the walls, and in a short time the Tyrians were driven back from their defenses, retreated to the center of the city, and made their last stand around one of their temples. According to the old fashion, Alexander led his men in person, and after taking the citadel and reforming his guards, attacked the Tyrians in their streets. They were no match for the Macedonians in hand-to-hand -hand fighting, and the Macedonians were wild with rage to avenge the torture and killing of the captives. In a short time, 8,000 Tyrians were put to death, and 2,000 were nailed upon crosses. To show how unequal was the fighting in the streets, we may note the statement that only 20 of the shield-bearing Macedonians were slain. The whole loss of Alexander in taking the place was about 400 killed, and three or 4,000 wounded, a greater loss than Grant suffered in taking Vicksburg. Before taking the city, Alexander had had a dream that Hercules had stretched his hand out over the walls to welcome him to the city. Perhaps for this reason he pardoned all those who had taken refuge in the Temple of Hercules, while slaying or selling into captivity all the rest, some 30,000. To celebrate his triumph, Alexander sacrificed to Hercules before his temple, making a sacred offering of the great engine that had first breached the wall, and then held a grand naval review and parade of his forces, celebrating games and sports before the temple. So, after seven months, fell this city, believed to be unconquerable. The site of this island city today is occupied by a small and unimportant town, with a few thousand inhabitants. But the Great Mole, to build which exhausted a city in a forest, still exists, and has caused a change in the tides about the city that has made the harbors fill up, thus destroying not only the city itself, but those very advantages that made its site valuable. Gossiping Plutarch tells us that the boy Alexander was wasteful in throwing incense upon the sacrificial fires, and that his tutor rebuked him, telling him to wait until he had conquered the lands where incense was made before being so lavish. After Tyre was taken, Alexander found amongst the spoils great stores of frankincense, and sent a great quantity of it to his tutor with the message, This will teach you never to be niggardly with the gods. It is important to remember that Alexander was helped in his warfare by the cleverness of the Greek engineers, and that they had learned from the earlier nations the secrets of siegecraft. Alexander's exploits were so celebrated that they were known throughout the civilized world, and no doubt the story of his sieges and the means used by him for taking cities were entirely familiar to the Carthaginians, and also to their great rivals the Romans. Thus, probably, the art of warfare was handed down from nation to nation until it came to Rome. The next siege, that of Saguntum, was what brought about the great Punic Wars and led to the ruin of Rome's great rival in the south, across the Mediterranean. It is an interesting siege also, because Saguntum was founded upon a rock, and could be attacked from only one side. End of section 8 Recording by Dan Ficklin, Indianapolis